that's what I feel like I've been sleuthing. I feel like I'm doing to you what you do to everyone. <laughs> Except I can't look up your criminal background or anything. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is Adam Rosh, and I want to thank you for joining me. This episode is incredibly special as I speak with attorney Angela Povolitis, who is a nationally recognized voice for victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse. Currently, Angela is an attorney with the state of Michigan whose work focuses on sexual assault, domestic violence, and other crime victim rights issues. Prior to that, she was a senior attorney in the state attorney general's criminal division and lead prosecutor on multi-victim domestic violence, stalking, and sexual assault cases. And for 12 years, she served as an assistant prosecuting attorney for Wayne County, working on cases of child abuse, child and adult sexual assault, child homicide, and other felony cases. Povolitis gained worldwide attention in 2018 as lead prosecutor in the case against former United States gymnastics physician Larry Nasser, who was convicted in January 2018 of sexually assaulting numerous young girls. Attorney Povolitis was instrumental in arranging for more than 200 of Nasser's victims to give impact statements to the court during his sentencing hearing, while the world watched live on television. This was perhaps one of the defining moments of the Me Too movement. In this episode of Conversations, Povolitis talks about her journey to becoming a prosecutor, what led her to focus on sexual and domestic violence cases, and what it means to be victim-centered, offender-focused, and trauma informed. She also talks about three distinct cases that I'd like to provide some background about to give you context during this episode. The first case is the People vs. Father James Rapp. Rapp was a Catholic priest accused of sexually assaulting young boys at Lumen Christian High School in Jackson, Michigan in the 1980s. In 2015, Povolitis filed 19 sexual assault cases against Rapp, who eventually pleaded no contest. And the night before Rapp's sentencing in April 2016, Povolitis organized a dinner and meeting for about 10 of the victims. The next morning, several gave impact statements during the sentencing. The second case is The People vs. Calvin Kelly. The defendant was an interstate truck driver, serial rapist, who preyed upon vulnerable women, including those struggling with drug addiction and poverty. Led by Povolitis and her cold case sexual assault team, the Michigan Attorney General's office linked Kelly to 11 reported rapes in four states spanning over 20 years. Povolitis issued charges in 2014, and after many adjournments, delays, and appeals, a two-week jury trial began in September 2017, where three victims testified. Kelly was acquitted despite overwhelming evidence. Shortly after his acquittal, Kelly was charged with three rapes in Tennessee. At the time of this podcast, he remains in jail awaiting trial. 
The third case, and the most widely known, is the People versus Larry Nasser. Nasser is one of the most prolific sexual abusers in U.S. history, having abused well over 500 victims. His criminal case began with a report from one victim in August of 2016 and quickly grew to hundreds of athletes from over a dozen different sports, ranging from gold medal winning Olympians and national team members to club level gymnasts. But before the world knew his name, a case was built and led by Povolitis and her team from the Michigan State University Police Department and Attorney General's Office. As the lead prosecutor on his state sexual abuse charges, Povolitis issued charges, presented evidence, questioned witnesses, and drafted an historic plea agreement where more than 200 victims gave impact statements while the world watched and learned of the horrors of sexual abuse and trauma. Now, if this wasn't enough exceptionalism for this episode, there's more. Now, I took the back seat and welcomed Danielle McGuire, PhD, to host this episode. Danielle is an award-winning author and historian of racial and sexual violence. Her first book, At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance, a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power, which was published by Knopf, won the Frederick Jackson Turner Award and the Lillian Smith Award, and is widely read in colleges around the country. Danielle is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians and has appeared on national public radio, book TV, CNN, MSNBC, and dozens of local radio stations and has spoken throughout the United States and around the world. So this is truly a dynamic duo. It is rare to get two people together who have such incredible backgrounds and to have one conversation between these two. So without further ado, here is the far-reaching conversation between attorney Angela Povolitis and Professor Danielle McGuire. Welcome to the show, Angie Povolitis. Do you go by Angie or Angela? So my friends call me Angie, so you can call me Angie because you're my friend. Aw, thanks. All right. Well, let's get right to it. And Danielle, I'll let you take it away and, and get us going. Okay. So Angie and I know each other, I think, first through youth sports. We're both soccer moms and we share a very competitive spirit. So I think it's only fitting that we start this conversation with a little sport talk. So I was doing a little bit of research on you, and I read that when you were in high school in Baldwin, Michigan, you earned 13 varsity letters. And, you know, most people don't even earn one. So I was like, what? 13 varsity letters? That's impressive. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm impressed with your research skills there because that was a that was a deep dive. Um, so Baldwin, for the folks that don't know, is a, is a smaller community in northern Michigan. It's about equal distance between Traverse City and Grand Rapids, about an hour from each of those larger towns, about 30 minutes from Lake Michigan. So it is a class D school. I, I think that they, they've changed it in the Michigan High School Athletic Association. But yeah, you know, I, I was an athletic kid. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm about 5'9", so I was about 5'9 at 12 and got recruited to play basketball on our basketball team to be the center. I had a nickname at the time of Totem Pole, which which was a little traumatizing, but but I loved it. I loved everything about basketball. I mean, I, I was thinking back to some of the uh, great Pistons years here and was a huge Pistons fan and would record the games on a VHS to watch all summer and practice in my backyard. So it's a tiny town. There were 45 people in my graduating class. So I did get to play four years of varsity on our basketball team. We did have a JV team, but it was kind of fun to be there as a freshman. And then I played four years of volleyball and then four years of track. So I think that brings us to 12. And then my senior year, I got to play softball with my sister who was a freshman. So that was really special she was a very good pitcher and I decided to kind of do two sports that season. But, you know, I was a good student. I was student body president. I was involved in a lot of different activities, but uh, sports were incredibly important to my childhood and growing up. And I think, you know, an integral part of, of my competitive spirit and I think transitioned well to, you know, my later career as a, a prosecutor and a trial attorney. And so many of the lessons I learned being part of a team and having a goal and working toward it, handling defeat, being resilient. All of those came from the basketball courts of Baldwin, Michigan. Wow. That's incredible. I read also that you actually were inducted into the Baldwin High School Basketball Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. That was a couple of years ago. And uh, the other thing I'm proud of in a humble brag kind of way was I was all area dream team for two years in a row. So in our local paper, but I mean, the transition of that, right, is is I was a big fish in a little pot, right? I was not good enough to play, you know, Division One or Division Two. I think I had a slight interest in maybe pursuing basketball, but I mean, I would have been able to make it on a Division team. And I really wanted to go to what I thought was the best state and arguably one of the best schools in the country at the University of Michigan. So, you know, basketball was going to have to stop after my senior year. So when you went to college, you didn't do any like intramural sports or anything like that? Oh, I did play intramural. Yeah. Just not, you know, at that level. Oh, goodness. Uh, Basketball, Uh volleyball, and which was a little bit of a insight into my future as a hockey mom, but that was fun. Did you say broom ball? Yeah. I don't know what that is. You're from Wisconsin. You didn't play broom ball in Wisconsin? (laughs) (laughs) So it's like hockey, but, but on a basketball, you know, um, court. With, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's a real broom. I can't remember. It's been so it's long. It's not like but... curling. No, it's more like, um, it's broom ball. It's, okay. no, it's like there's, and you have a ball and you have a team and you have like a stick that, I think it might be a broom actually, where you <laughs> hit the ball and try to pass it. You know, it's like hockey on a basketball court. Right. Oh, that's great. I think that's really wonderful. No, I didn't play broom ball in Wisconsin. The only kind of broom I used was when my mom made me sweep. <laughs> <laughs> I hope broomball isn't a, just a women's league. Is that? 
Oh, no, it was okay. co-ed, too, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it's pretty gendered <laughs> otherwise. We could bring it back, Danielle. Oh, I think now's the time. Right, right. What else do we have to do, you know? Another article that I read about you, it said that it was actually something that your mom said, and your mom is a librarian, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said in a more recent interview that by fourth grade, you knew what you wanted to do, what college you were going to, and that you wanted to be a lawyer. Is that something that you think is true by fourth grade? You knew that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember it being exactly that age, but definitely by high school, I had an, an interest in the law, which, and I really can't kind of think back and find the, where that started, but I know up until the late elementary school years, I really wanted to be an astronaut. So it was during, you know, I remember Space Camp was my favorite movie. And I just recently introduced that to my boys and did not have the same effect, unfortunately. <laughs> but, and, you know, I was, I think I was about 11, 11. I remember being in, I think, fifth grade when the Challenger explosion happened. That was wow. a pretty dynamic event in my life because I was really interested in NASA and the space program and, you know, the space shuttle. But unfortunately, I was not a great student related to science and math, you know, so there, I think, came a point where that really wasn't an option that I saw, at least, and kind of shut that down my own self. But, but yeah, I mean, I watched L.A. Law. I, uh, you know, enjoyed A Time to Kill was uh, a movie that I watched later on. You know, To Kill a Mockingbird is my favorite book ever, you know, Atticus Finch and his fight for the underdog and injustice. So yeah, I had a, you know, there weren't many lawyers involved with, you know, there was my mom's cousin is the trial court judge and he was always a man that, that I respected and others respected and carried himself with a lot of dignity and seemed to be compassionate. Yeah. It just, it seemed like, you know, something attainable and a career that could, could be helpful and meaningful. So I had a vision, you know, going into college that I wanted to be pre-law and that law school is a goal, but I had no kind of idea of exactly what that looked like, you know, at a high school or 18. Right. So when you said that you watched L.A. Law, were there other shows on TV or other movies that made you want to be a prosecutor or a defense attorney? I mean, was there what was it about those movies that spoke to you? So I like to argue. I mean, if you were interviewing my parents, I'm sure they would tell you that, you know, I I really wanted to have the last word and I always wanted to be right. So you know, I got my mouth got me in trouble a little bit growing up more than anything did. But, you know, becoming a prosecutor really wasn't something that that I even considered until law school. Actually, I, I can remember being home for the summer, I think, between, you know, my senior year of college and starting law school because I went right away and I was watching A Time to Kill, the Matthew McConaughey movie about a you know brutal sexual assault in the South and a subsequent trial. And, and there's a, this scene where he's giving a closing argument and it's you know, incredibly impassioned and, and you know, moving. And uh, my mom asked me, she said, is, is this the kind of lawyer you want to be? And I'm like, oh God, no, there's no way I'd want to get up in front of people and argue and, and have all the attention on me. I mean, at that point I was, I think, you know, interested in you know, environmental law or regulatory law or research and writing. So when I started law school, that wasn't even on my radar. And it wasn't until I had, you know, an amazing criminal law professor, Peter Henning at Wayne State Law, that I had a few internships that I did, you know, especially at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office that really opened my eyes to, you know, what being a prosecutor meant, 
what it entailed, how you could be the voice for victims, how you could, you know, meet people at their arguably one of the lowest points in their lives and help them feel supported and believed and really be the voice for so many in our society. You know, when you go in the courtroom as a prosecutor, you know, I would say, Angela Pobolitis on behalf of the people of the state of Michigan. And that's really powerful and, and something I took serious to be that voice for everybody, but especially for the victim. That's really incredible. You mentioned Peter Henning and what was it about him and his class that really changed things for you? I mean, I, I've had mentors and professors in my life who've completely changed the course of my life, my path. What was it about him or his classes that did that for you? Well, so he was just incredibly engaging and, you know, he was a former federal prosecutor. So I think having that real world experience, you know, to not just, you know, cite case law or research or to have kind of been in the trenches himself really was impactful when, when we were talking about case law related to criminal procedure and, and practice. And, you know, it, it just touches so many places within, you know, lives. And, and I truly believe, you know, after watching Time to Kill, I thought I'd be more interested in, you know, possibly being a defense attorney, right? That you can do a lot of good social justice wise. And from that perspective, and I, and I absolutely agree that you can, but but I think, you know, our system needs really good, honest, fair prosecutors, right? We're the entry point into the system and, and you make that decision. And I, and I always took that decision incredibly seriously, you know, that I decide to charge a case, and if I charge a case, the impact that's going to have on the victim, on the offended, on the offender, if I decide to deny a case because I don't think we can prove it, you know, beyond our, our reasonable doubt, then the impact that will have on the offender and the victim and the community. So I think, you know, what I, I speak now to law students occasionally, and, and one of the things I do think at this particular moment, there's a lot of interest in social justice, understandably so. Yeah. But I encourage them, you know, don't shut the door on prosecution because you think it's, you know, all law and order and and people who are out to only get a win or improve their own political profile, you know, you can you can have a lot of impact on everyone involved if you're fair and honest and follow the law. And, you know, nobody wants to send somebody to prison unless they've really hurt someone and, you know, are not, you know, rehabilitatable or there's a lot of bigger issues related to the goals of sentencing beyond just punishment, right? It's there's accountability and there's Victims need to know that the system works for them. And, and that's one of the, the issues I'm most concerned about now. I want to I wanna actually come back to that in yeah. a little bit. But first, I want to ask you about your very first case and what that was like and if you remember it. So I can tell you a couple of stories. So the, the first day, so when I was in law school, I tried to expose myself to a lot of different areas because I really wanted you know to use those three years and not only learn in the classroom, but, but kind of figure out what was going to be the best fit for me as a career. Mm -hmm. So I spent a summer working for the free legal aid clinic at Wayne State University Law School, where we provided legal aid to, you know, in family court for domestic violence victims and divorce cases, which was really impactful. It was all run by students with a couple of attorneys, supervisors. I worked for the Wayne County Corporation Council when uh, former Governor Granholm was the corporation counsel. So that was in the late 90s. I was interested in kind of government legal work, and that was interesting. It was all civil-based, you know, so a lot of lawsuits against the county or mental health hearings, those kind of things. I worked at a law firm that represented a lot of 
you know, labor law issues, democratic politic issues, sex, Waldman O'Hare. I don't I think it's it's gone through some other name iteration by now. And that was interesting. I worked for a personal injury lawyer. And he did not treat his staff well. I mean, I, you know, and not that he needed to, but I remember getting briefs back with like cartoon swear words and just not a great mentor, pretty abrupt and, you know, didn't want to really mentor people or expose them to, you know, arguments or some of the other more exciting places. So, you know, that was somewhat of a negative experience with the firm and other people at the firm were, were great to work with. I had an internship. It's so interesting how kind of the world works out, right? When you look yeah. back on it, but yeah. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. I had a law clerk, like for credit, an internship at the federal courthouse. So many of the attorneys in the civil division I worked in, you know, said you you need to go work for a judge and kind of see the inside, how the courthouse works from that perspective. So I applied, I I had a a internship for credit and it turned out I was only there for a couple of weeks because there was a conflict. So the, the firm I was working at for pay had a number of cases and this judge had, you know, a great reputation and was was very above board. I think most judges are, but, and he said, you know, you really, you're going to have to pick, you're going to have to pick between this position for credit or this position for pay. And, you know, I really needed to have a job that paid. So here I was a couple of weeks into my third year of law school. I had to find another internship that I could easily transition from the court to something else. And, And a law school friend said, Hey, have you ever considered going to the prosecutor's office? And I said, I really hadn't at that point. And, you know, and she said, well, you know, you should come take a look at it. They're hiring and specifically hiring in the child and family abuse bureau. So we called it CFAB and it was run by one of my, you know, most important mentors in my life, a woman named Nancy Deal, who really was the first person, I think, arguably on the front lines in Michigan discussing how important it was to have specialized especially trained prosecutors, prosecuting child abuse, sexual assault, child sexual assault, domestic violence. And she started this unit in Wayne County in, I think, the 70s or 80s. So I went in for the interview. I got the internship. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I loved it. I loved going into the Frank Murphy Hall of Justice every day. And I'd read the newspaper. I'm a big news junkie. And I would read the paper and a case that was on the front page would be down the hall and I could go and watch that, you know, trial. And my first day, I remember getting assigned to a prosecutor named Jerry Dorsey, who's still a prosecutor in Wayne County and is also a mentor of mine. And, you know, he had me kind of tag along. It was a child murder case where a young child had been murdered and sexually assaulted. So it was, I mean, I'd never experienced anything like that. And it was so impactful to kind of see how he interacted with the surviving family members, how he presented himself to the court, how he handled this jury trial. And I was hooked. You know, I mean, it's these are horrific crimes, but to see that you could have a positive impact on these people's lives and that you could support them and that you could be the one to try to, you know, obtain justice really was so impactful. So I was there for a couple of years and and was lucky enough to get hired after I passed the bar. So Wow. Angie, I had no idea that you did all of those things before you became the kind of prosecutor that I know you as. That's an incredible story of, I don't know, kismet, coincidence, you know. Yeah, like serendipitous, right? And it's like all of those things kind of, I don't know if it would have been on my radar. I don't know if I would have been able to, I mean, it, it was really what I was hoping for, be exposing myself to legal aid and to civil, you know, litigation and 
all in the court system was to try to find that right fit. And it, it felt very much the right fit, even at, you know, 25 and right out of law school. So. Wow. That's incredible. So you went on to work then at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. And for listeners who might not know Wayne County, we're talking mainly about Detroit. That's the county that Detroit is in. And so once you started at Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, what was your focus there? Did you stay in child abuse and those issues or did you move on to other things? Yeah, so I graduated from law school in 2000, which was an election year. And the longstanding prosecutor there, John O'Hare, I think he'd been, been there over oh, you know, yeah. two or three decades, had announced his retirement. So there was going to be a new prosecutor. And, you know, the bar exam happens in July, but you don't get your results till November. And no one really hires lawyers unless, you know, you're at one of the kind of fancier firms until you get those results. So for those, you know, four or five months or so, I was lucky enough because I kind of stuck around and was doing a, a good job as an intern. I landed this contract position where I was prosecuting personal protection order violations. Yeah. So we had an intern doing that, you know, and it intersected obviously with domestic violence. There would often be misdemeanor domestic violence cases and that would accompany these protection orders. So you interact with victims and you'd have to present testimony and you had a lower burden of proof, but you still had a docket to run and prepare for. So I felt really lucky. I mean, it paid nothing, but it got my foot in the door. So when I passed the bar in November, would have been probably, I think, within the same week as the election, and Mike Duggan, the, the current you know, Detroit mayor, was elected prosecutor. And there were a number of openings, like um, you know, usually there's maybe four or five a year. And, and there were, I think, upwards of 20 to 30 openings that year because people are retiring and lots of changes. So I just happened to, to be, you know, I had a number of kind of mentors and folks advocating for my hire who knew my work both at the Corporation Council and, and at the prosecutor's office. So I got hired there. So unfortunately, I didn't get to stay in the protection or DD. So I actually was assigned to our forfeiture unit, which handled, you know, narcotics forfeitures and drug forfeitures, you know, abandoned homes became a big issue where they were doing nuisance abatement proceedings to try to go after, you know, owners who were not teeping up with their property. But then I, I found a little niche. So within our unit, we did all of the nuisance, public nuisance cases. So yeah. At the time in, you know, early 2000s, we had a number of like smutty theaters, right? And massage parlors. Right? <laughs> well, not just in Detroit, Wayne, Wayne County, County in general, right? So those were cases for some reason, you know, kind of got dumped on my lap and, you know, I, I ran with those and, you know, it was a lot of interaction with, you know, undercover officers who had to go in and, you know, be solicited or who had to, you know, uncover evidence, <laughs> you know. Wow bad stuff happening in theaters. And then we would file the civil actions to try to padlock them or take them over. So I did that for about three years, but I really wanted to be in court. So every time I got to go to court and forfeiture was, it was rare, but it was, you know, exciting. And so at some point, Mike Duggan left to go to the Detroit Medical Center and he, there was an opening. So Kim Worthy was appointed to that position. I know she was planning to run anyway. And, and when Prosecutor Worthy came in, I got kind of exiled from the forfeiture unit or, or let out. Actually, I was <laughs> I really wanted to be a, a regular prosecutor. So she sent me, I think it was in the domestic violence unit was where I, where I got to go the first time. So I was doing domestic violence cases. So I can still remember my first domestic violence trial. Um, what was that like? How did you prepare it, for that? Well, I mean, you know, exhaustedly, right? And it was probably a 
what is it, a two-year, you know, two-year felony case, right? But it was, you know, a very typical case where, you know, for any number of reasons, by the time we got to trial, the victim was not interested in, you know, or able to, to participate. Like she wanted us to drop the case and it was her husband and there was some history, prior histories there that made the charge. But I can remember, so I would really struggle with balancing like real life and and work but even for these trials where I would you know stay up the night before and the weeks before and make sure every you know area was covered and prepared and general outlines for the witnesses how I would prepare the the voir dire the jury selection the closing argument all that stuff right read every you know manual I could find on prosecuting these cases and and it was you know it ultimately was a conviction those are bittersweet too sometimes, right? right? Because you put all this work into it and it never felt like a personal win. It felt like the right decision. Mm-hmm. But we know that they left the courtroom together and he's now you know, on probation and, and hopefully getting the services he needs to control his anger and to control his impulses and that she's safe. So, Were there any cases at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office that did feel like a personal win for you? Yeah, you know, so it was interesting. So I got to do, you know, the domestic violence case for a while. Then I would was assigned to a felony courtroom, a couple of different felony courtrooms, and you, you handle all the cases that come in that aren't specially assigned. And I knew I wanted to get back to doing, you know, the family abuse cases, the sexual assaults, the domestic violence, those cases. So I had my first, you know, sexual assault case, and I can remember that. And it was a teenager, I think she was about 14, who had been sexually assaulted by mom's boyfriend and, you know, disclosed and mom didn't believe her and was supporting the offender. And mm. and it was a conviction. I mean, we, we were able to put it together and, and she was amazingly resilient, you know, even lacking kind of the familial support. You know, I think just knowing that we believed her and we supported her and we, you know, went with her. I mean, I really wanted to do those cases. So mm. my boss at the time actually the woman in charge of that unit is another mentor of mine, Laura Weingarten, and and she had kind of got wind of the trial and was kind of recruiting me there. And I was happy to go, you know, a lot of prosecutors, especially in, you know, big city offices, I think they envision that, you know, the most glamorous or the most prestigious place to prosecute is is homicide cases, right? Those are the ones we we all see on TV and make the headlines. And it wasn't that I wasn't interested in those. I just really felt like the family violence cases or the sexual assault cases, the child abuse cases were equally, if not more important in in my view than, you know, a homicide case. And that's not diminishing what happens to homicide victims or shooting cases. But, you know, I, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in, you know, very modest means, but I had a, a safe home and I had parents who supported me and I had, you know, a loving environment. And I think, you know, kids need that that kind of environment in order to thrive and do well at school and sports and everything else. And I think they can do well, even if they have that environment, but it's an extra hurdle. Right. So to be able to, to be the one to work on those cases and to try to do them as well as I could and to support those victims. I mean, the most amazing thing to me was that, you know, you could read a case file and, it would bring you to tears, you know, just the horror of what someone had experienced. And then you'd meet them, especially a child or a teenager in person and knowing they were, they had other people in their lives who were supporting them or they had access to good counseling, um, how resilient they could be. I mean, it wasn't easy, but there was always this like spark of hope and resiliency. And I mean, I think some of the fiercest courage I've ever seen have been those kids, sometimes, you know, elementary age, sometimes teenagers 
who are standing outside the courtroom door about to walk in and share the most embarrassing or heart-wrenching story with you know 12 or 14 strangers on a jury while their perpetrator is feet away and you know to be able to kind of walk through that with them i'm going to start crying on this podcast yeah, me too. You know, i always cry but that really was incredibly motivating it felt a lot of pressure too to be honest i mean that you know you, you don't want to have an off day you don't want to pick a bad jury you don't want to do all that you can because there's so much on Reddit on the line. But you asked me a question about a case. Well, well, before, <laughs> I got I, before I do that, I just, I mean, I'm glad you told me this, but I want to know, like, how do you steal yourself for those moments? How do you be the strength that those kids need in that moment? How, how do you do that as a human being and someone who knows the history and knows the horrible story and you're the one who has to stand up there and be strong? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know that I have one answer, but it's, you know, so when you're taught to interact with children in the criminal justice system, whether the police or the prosecutor and a forensic interview, you know, there's a protocol, there's a child forensic interviewing protocol that I think every state has implemented. And we definitely have it here in Michigan. In Michigan. And it's, and it's as, a, as a result of, you know, many of those horrible cases you'd hear about in the 1980s where there were, you know, false allegations and daycare centers and, you know, kids are, are somewhat impressionable, right? So you want to make sure you're not leading them. You know, that's integral in the protocol. You want to make sure they're competent. You want to make sure that your hypothesis testing, right? That you're not just, you know, taking the version and, and fitting it into a crime, right? But one of the things we learned during that protocol and that training is building a rapport with your victims. And, and I would apply that protocol to like my adult cases or my untested rape kit cases or pretty much any case because you know, you bring a victim in with a police officer before you're going to charge the case. And, you know, a lot of folks would just dive right into the details. And I know even if I'm seeing a doctor or a counselor or, you know, you want there to be some conversation, right? right. We're, we're having, you want there to be some, yeah. So I would take that extra time and try to build a rapport. And I have to tell you, I loved it. Like, I mean, especially the teenagers, like I'd be like, you know, tell me what your favorite music is. What's your favorite, you know, um, movie? Or I would learn so much about kind of pop culture from that perspective or what was on their mind or who their friends were, or who they, you know, what they wanted to be when they grew up. So I think it, it really started well before we even went to court and trying to build that rapport and that trust with the victim, with their family, that they knew that you were going to be somebody reliable and consistent in their life. So pulling back just a little bit, we had the pleasure of kind of being able to vertically prosecute cases, which is important. So from the minute like the police would bring a case, ideally through sentencing, it would just be one prosecutor. You know, in most cases, there's different court proceedings and different prosecutors. So victims have to meet so many different people. So, you know, you build that resiliency, you build that, you know, kind of rapport with them and you build the trust. And you know, at least during that time, I mean, I've cried in court before, and I think it's somewhat well-documented sometimes. One of my favorite movies is For the Love of the Game, right? With Kevin Costner, and he's playing at Yankee Stadium, and yeah. he's got all this stuff going on, right? And, you know, he's got these folks heckling him, and he's trying to pitch a perfect game, and it's, you know, he's got this saying, it's like, clear the mechanism, right? And he clears the mechanism, clears all the distraction out. And that became kind of my go-to Definitely during you know the Nassar case, which I you know, may or may not talk about, but kind of throughout my career after I watched that movie, like I've got this job to do, I've got this victim to help, I've got this jury to kind of make sure they understand it, and you just kind of clear the mechanism, and, and then you know sometimes you break down afterward right. for sure. 
So, you know, that's a perfect segue in some ways to the case that I think, you know, the world kind of came to know you through um, and that brought, you know, national and even international attention to your work and your awesomeness. And that is, of course, the Larry Nasser case, which began long before the world saw you on national TV giving your you know, closing statement. And, you know, in, in just in terms of like clearing the mechanism. So that began in 2016, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we'll branch out from here, but it began with an Indie Star article, an investigative report in a newspaper and one victim, one survivor speaking out publicly. And it ballooned into this enormous case with hundreds of victims and survivors speaking out. And it apexed in many ways at the height of the Me Too movement. And in lots of ways, all of your work leading up to this case prepared you for and enabled you to shepherd the survivors through what was undoubtedly one of the biggest, most important sexual assault cases in American history. And so I guess I'm not really sure where to start with this, but why don't we sort of start at the end and then we can see where it goes. But I'm thinking about in 2018, after Larry Nasser has pled guilty to what, like 10 cases that you brought from multiple counties, and you've got hundreds of people standing before a judge ready and willing to give impact statements. Can you just tell us about A, how that happened, and B, how you managed all of that? So it's, I think, important to note that there were multiple courts, right? So there were multiple judges that folks were coming before. But the interesting thing is, you know, from that case, I was as the kind of first chair prosecutor on it, the face of it, but, but it was a team effort. I mean, we had, you know, Robin Liddell was a was my second chair with me from the attorney general's office, an amazing prosecutor. And Chris Allen, who was a pellet whiz kid and Becca Snyder and Angela Olson and, you know, our victim advocates. And then, of course, our partners, you know, at the Michigan State University Police Department and Detective Munford. So um, it was an absolutely, you know, a team effort. But, you know, you're right. And as I look back on it, I'm still kind of trying to understand it all, right? And because we were really in a bubble and didn't really fully appreciate what was happening. We knew it was getting attention and big and growing, but I still don't think I have a full grasp of it personally, because those were long, hard days and weeks. You know, I mean, we were working 18, 20 hours a week. We were trying to coordinate. We wanted to make sure anybody who came forward had that opportunity to speak. And it was something that I felt really strongly about. And when we even just started discussing a plea agreement or a plea to the case, that that was a non-negotiable part that, that the defendant had to agree in our plea agreement. I think folks kind of, you know, that gets overlooked that the reason the victims all were able to speak is because of the plea agreement that I drafted and that, you know, our office agreed to, because without that plea agreement, it would not have looked like that. It would not have happened like that. And this wasn't the first case that I did that on about, you know, a couple of years before now, sir, I prosecuted a case involving a Catholic priest who had abused dozens of young boys in Jackson County. A case came to us. He was about to get out of prison in Oklahoma. And and we had, you know, again, kind of serendipitously two victims 30 years after the fact walk into the police department, unbeknownst to each other, to file reports within a two-week period. So, So that investigation 
you know, many of the practices that I had been trained on when I, when, you know, both at, really when I came to the attorney general's office to, to start this, you know, cold and complex sexual assault project, we had done it, you know, another mentor of mine is, is, you know, Danielle is Debbie Kane and mm -hmm. she's my current boss, but she and, and her staff really had this vision of a statewide project where you could take a prosecutor and a police officer and and really mold them and train them into, you know, the best trained entity that maybe could respond to these cases with more time and resources than local prosecutors. And we did. We, we learned about what it meant to be victim-centered, to really focus on victims' need first and foremost, as opposed to, you know, what you needed as a prosecutor or, you know, to be offender-focused. You know, so much of our sexual assault kind of cultural myths revolve around victim blaming as opposed to how did an offender find a vulnerable victim or how did they manipulate a vulnerability to get away with it? And then, you know, the trauma piece, right, to, to be a little bit more informed about what trauma looks like for victims, how it's different and, and the impact on going forward. So in that priest case, you know, we started out with those two victims. We started getting records and material and public kind of became aware of it and you know, more victims came forward. And, and these are men, you know, now, you know, our husband's ages are older, you know, 40s and 50s who have gone on some to have very successful careers, others, you know, who have really struggled with what happened to them as teenagers and pre-teenagers. So I had a lot of interaction with those men and their families and some of their wives, you know, and we knew how important it was, one, that they not only have an opportunity to participate in the criminal justice system, not only to have their offender, you know, they wanted to make sure they weren't going to do it to someone else, that they were going to be there incarcerated and held responsible, but also that they had an opportunity somewhere to talk about the impact the crime had on them. Right. And so that victim impact statement in the priest case became, it was one of the most powerful days in my career ever, but, but absolutely at that point, you know, we had, we brought in men from all over the country, from Alaska and Texas and Utah. Men who, you know, for 30 or 40 years, one of, one of the victims from Utah had filed a lawsuit against the diocese and it went all the way to the Utah Supreme Court and he was, his case was dismissed. He never had an opportunity to confront, you know, his monster. So that afternoon in that courtroom, where we, I think we had 10 men come in again because it was part of the plea agreement. So we, you know, we, we were able to work out essentially a contract between the prosecutor and the defense attorney where you know, we agreed to this range of years and you agree to let all the victims and the court rubber stamps it and agrees to go along with it. It was so powerful. I mean, it was, you know, it was not only an opportunity for them to kind of, you know, talk about what those 30 years have looked like. And sometimes, you know, it was a one-time incident. And, and, and what I really realized that it doesn't diminish it. It doesn't, you know, sometimes a one-time horrific incident can be as impactful as, you know, serial abuse that happens for a decade. So it was so important. So that really became kind of the framework that I use, you know, going into Nassar. We had the training, we had the team, and we knew that we, I wanted to bring 500 cases, right? <laughs> if there was a victim that came forward and we believed them and they wanted to go forward, you know, let's bring it on for the next 10 years or so. But, um, you know, at some point, the way our sentencing works, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to prolong the inevitable, especially when you have an offender who's willing to come to court and admit what he did. So we tried to find a way that those victims would have the ability if they wanted. Not everyone, you know, was in a spot where that was going to be good for them or, and that becomes 
part of what victim-centered is. So that sentence agreement was a big deal. I think when we entered the sentence agreement, we knew of about 125 victims. I think when we started the sentencing hearing, we thought we might have 88 of those 125 come forward. And then as it kind of you know grew, by the end, we had, I think, over 200 victims give impact statements in one way or the other. And obviously, you know, we're two years out and there's well over 500 victims who have reported or filed lawsuits. So, and it was, was remarkable to kind of see the transformation from, I think, victim to survivor to kind of advocate that's happened with that victim pool. But, you know, one of the things I stress about that case is I'm so grateful for, for everything that's come from it, all the good that's come with awareness with the victims advocacy toward legislative and societal change that, you know, as my friend and someone who's, we've talked about this often, you know, most of my cases didn't have that, that kind of interest or attention. You know, many of my cases in Detroit and around the state involved, you know, victims who will never maybe have a victim impact statement for some reason or other, or won't have media interest or national awards or, or books or movies. And I think it's just equally as important to make sure those voices and those stories are are understood. You know, a lot of times they are coming from various underrepresented or marginalized populations. So that's been my no, other abso- goal. Absolutely. And, you know, the work that you've done around the state on behalf of those victims in particular has been really crucial and important. And you're absolutely right. They don't get the attention they need. And it's a it's a huge and gaping hole in both the Me Too movement and in our culture where we value one person's story over the other. And yet their stories are very similar and sometimes as heartbreaking no matter what, you know. I know just because we've talked a little bit about it, but can you tell us a little bit about what it was like in those days leading up to the impact statements? Like how did you, expecting 88 people to talk and ending up with more than 200 in a matter of days probably was chaotic and crazy and, you know, far away from the television screen and everything. What was that like? How did you organize that? How did you keep the survivors together emotionally? How did you keep it together emotionally? And how did you make that work? Because it looked seamless on TV. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> but again, I mean, it, it comes back to that team. So, it, you know, it wasn't just me. It was our a constant kind of communication with our victim advocates and, and co-counsels and and honestly, the civil attorneys, too, that were involved, you know, were a huge assistance in trying to coordinate this. But, you know, as I look back on that time, the thing that I remember, again, because we started out talking about youth sports, we had a hockey tournament that the weekend before. So it was Martin Luther King Day weekend. We were in Lansing, of all places, right? And I just couldn't escape the case. So I, you know, was in court all day on Friday, and then I had to meet, you know, my family at the ice rink. And I didn't really pay attention to where our first game was. And I walk in, I you know put it in my GPS or whatever, and I drive over in the snow. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, I, I pull up to this place, I think it's called the Summit, and it's where our ice rink is. Mm-hmm. But it, it happens to be like a multi-sport facility where right next to the ice rink is John Gettard's Twisters no. you know, gymnastics you know, facility, which... For those that don't know, many of the Nassar victims had trained there and were part of that. And Gettert was, was and is, I think, still part of a larger investigation. So I walk in and I'm like, oh, you've got, and I'd never seen it. I'd never been there before. Wow. I'd seen pictures. I'd talked to so many victims about it. And it was a Friday night and 
there were little girls practicing gymnastics. Um, And I sat there and I tried not to cry because I couldn't believe that it was still open, that kids were still there, knowing, you know, that that was one of the places that Nassar had abused victims. And then I think one of our next games was at Munn Ice Arena in East Lansing. So it was, you know, decked out in Michigan State gear, you know, and those games were early, like six, seven o'clock in the morning. And then the next one was at a suburban ice rink within half a block of Nassar's medical center, right? So I could not escape the case that weekend. So what I remember though, is between, you know, these tournament games is we go back to our hotel and I would log on to work because we were, you know, in constant contact kind of. So we, we had a master sheet, like an Excel sheet of actually not Excel, because I don't know how to use Excel. Just <laughs> But it was like a Word document, you know, super old school. And, you know, the victim's name, whether they wanted to be publicly identified or not. And then, you know, everyone would kind of I was getting emails all weekend and we were trying to coordinate travel too and often paid for airline and hotel and from all over the country. And we're trying to figure out, you know, Skype and we had a victim in South Korea and one in Boston and multiple, you know, I think one in in Europe and we were getting videos. And, but I also really, one thing i learned from the rap case is, you know, these men were coming in to speak and the defendant, the priest, father rap looked very different than what he looked like when he was, you know, abusing them. So I found some pictures. I'd gotten a, you know, yearbook and I found the pictures of what he, you know, because he was a wrestling coach. He was very strong. And, you know, by the time we convicted him 30 years later, he was pretty weak and feeble. You know, during that sentencing hearing, what we learned is the importance of photographs and to kind of center everybody around what the abuse looked like. So I had asked those men for pictures of themselves, you know, at the time that they were abused to show what a 14 year old looked like, or, you know, those kind of things. And they gave me that. So we, we used that idea in Nassar too. So when we're, when I was corresponding with victims, I would ask them, hey, can you send me a picture, you know, of yourself at the time of the abuse? And a lot of the pictures we got were, you know, in their gym, gymnastics leotard or, you know, we had, I think, 14 different sports represented. So soccer players and swimmers and rowers. So we were trying to coordinate that. <laughs> we had a PowerPoint going on where we would you know, keep it in order. We would have a master list. I mean, there was so much fluidity. And we had to kind of be able to pivot quickly. And most importantly, you know, because there was so much media there, we wanted to make sure that we had a whole like kind of what we thought was like a fail-safe process to confirm whether somebody wanted to be publicly identified. Because the last thing we wanted was for someone to inadvertently be live streamed or tweeted out who wasn't. And I think we made one mistake. We were able to fix it and had good relationships with you know, some of our media folks who, you know, were pretty quick to delete tweets and stuff. But but in general, you know, we confirmed that. I tried to introduce everyone. I tried to keep it smooth and moving. And it was just, we were trying to estimate how many we could get to each day, knowing that the number was growing, that the interest was growing. And, and in, with all of this, it's important to remember, Rachel Denhollander, the first victim to come forward, we wanted her to go last. I mean, we wanted her to have the final word because she'd really started this and had sacrificed so much. So it was pretty remarkable to me. You know, we initially thought we'd be there for three days and then we were there for, I think, six or seven in Ingham and then another three or four in Eaton. And and she just kind of kept coming back to court every day. And the logistics, I mean, we didn't have enough seats in the courtroom. We didn't, we had an overflow room. 
We, you know, had moms who were nursing that needed quiet space. We had, you know, dogs, therapy dogs on staff to be able to kind of hopefully be available to people. We had counselors on staff. We had, we tried to think of all of the different variables. And I have to say it was many of these ideas came from our victim advocates who just were really thinking outside the box, like how can we support these victims during what's going to be a really challenging time and make it as seamless as possible. And we pulled it off. Yeah, you really did. <laughs> How did they support each other when they were all together? Because I imagine that some of them didn't know each other. There were, you know, decades apart in terms of when the crimes happened. Did you see them come together as a group of survivors? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and again, we, we tried to separate them before, right? Because we, we didn't want there to be an opening for a defense attack that they were somehow, you know, colluding or right. getting their story straight or and again, I go back to the rap case. So one of the things we did in that case that I also did in Nasser was the night before the hearing, we we brought everyone together and we had this informal kind of meeting. And in Jackson, it's a small, it's a small, bigger town, I realized. Everybody knows everybody, right? And everyone knew who rap was. So even just the logistics of finding a place and then making sure people knew. So it became the povolitis meeting, right? So nobody knew what povolitis was. So how to pronounce it. You know, and we did that with Nasser too. We, we found a room the night before, but from the rap meeting, the thing that was so remarkable is, you know, two men who are cousins who didn't know the other was a victim. So they walk into this room. It's the detective and I, we have some like appetizers and sodas ready to go. And bam, they, they kind of are, are hit by, you were a victim too. You were, you know, and, and it was just, it was really emotionally intense we wanted to, to ask them any, you know, have them ask us any question we could answer. We wanted, we wanted to prepare them for the next day as much as we could and kind of try to alleviate their fears. Because, you know, one of the things I realized in 20 years of trial work is everybody watches Law & Order or right. you know, some kind of show like that. <laughs> and that's what they think the court's going to be like, right. right? And it's so different. I mean, often yeah. it's somewhat boring. So that was so great though, because the next day we get to court with these men and then they've all met each other and they know, you know, they're not, they're not total strangers to each other. Like it would have been had they just come to court and like just the emotional support they provided, they, you know, all exchanged, I think, emails and connected on Facebook and, you know, for, for some time they were regularly keeping in contact as needed. So for Nasser, we felt really, we felt it was really important too, to have that kind of outside of a courtroom setting meeting. Um, so we, reserved a room, I think, at the community center in East Lansing. Again, became the pulpolitis room. So people, you know, we, we kind of wanted, didn't want folks to know. And, you know, the chief of police bought pizza and we had cupcakes and we had, the advocates had made these worry stones to hand out to everyone that had an inspirational word. And we were able to kind of give them a preview to answer questions. And, you know, for those two or three hours, it was, you know, there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of connections made. And then you you saw those connections continue because most of the victims, many of them knew other athletes, you know, from their gyms or from their organizations that were part of the case, but there were a number who were there alone, you know? And then we had two families that had lost their children who, who you know, one who had died in an accident, another who had died of by suicide. And we wanted to make sure that those families, you know, had a place at the table or supported and I still have kept in contact with one of them. And, and it's been really wonderful to know that she's in contact with some of the other victims, too. So I have two questions. One is when you gave your closing statement or your 
Is that what it's called? Is it was that your closing statement? So it's kind of technically an allocution because okay. it wasn't a jury, but like you get a chance to say something. Yeah. Okay. So I went back and I read the whole thing, and you know I'm a writer, and I I'm struck by what an amazing piece of writing it is, and I'm wondering how you sat down to write that and what you had to do to sort of clear the mechanism in order to put that together. What was your process like? So it's, it was similar to what I would do in a trial. And what I did in, in trial work was I'd always have a second notebook, you know, a legal pad where during, you know, witness testimony or closing arguments or, you know, when the other side was talking about what I had ideas that would pop in my head. And I would literally just, I'd go to the back and I'd start at the back instead of the front. And I just write those ideas down. So, you know, in the course of those five or six days, I had a ton of ideas. I mean, they, it didn't, it was like a gobbledygook kind of idea, but, you know, even though we were in this bubble, I, I knew I had an opportunity to potentially talk about some of the big recurring themes and the issues that we were seeing, um, you know, whether it was from the institutional responses or some of the mean comments we were hearing about on social media about the victims, some of the you know, continued victim blaming or questioning. So I knew that, you know, I had a really unique opportunity that most prosecutors never get to, to kind of confront those ideas. And, and, and I kept thinking about, you know, how do we get here? I mean, I, I still kind of am awestruck by that. And we had the opportunity to go to Los Angeles for the SB Awards when they gave the victims the Arthur Ashe Award and brought, you know, it was, I think over 140, 150 of them onto stage. And, I still am struck sometimes by that number. It's kind of how I feel about what's going on in the world right now with COVID because right. we see these gigantic numbers, but behind every number is a person and a, and a personal experience and a family member and a coach and a gym. And, and it, I remember sitting in the audience in Los Angeles during the rehearsal and just kind of breaking down because the breadth of destruction that one person can cause right. was like, you know, manifest itself in front of me. And, you know, it was, again, one of those things, like, I don't think I'll ever understand many of the predators that I've encountered. And I don't even begin to understand Larry Nasser. And I've kind of come to peace with that. But, I, you know, here's someone who went to medical school and, and was trained to help and had an amazing life and opportunity and prestige, but yet, you know, choose to harm and hurt so many. And, you know, the, the visceral emotion that was running through those courtrooms, you know, I can still feel it. So I wanted to try to capture that. I mean, so I stayed at a hotel in the area. It became kind of my refuge. And I remember I kind of started putting it together and I usually would be in my room. And I remember my dear friends, you and Megan sending me flowers, which were wonderful. But, but for whatever reason, the night before the, the hearing, I, I wanted to sit in the, the main lobby, you know, the, the little gathering place. I don't want to talk to anybody. It was in a corner. <laughs> I think I tried a hot pocket for the first time, which was really <laughs> disgusting. But, and I just wanted to kind of just see what was going on in the world. But I also kind of read through it in my mind and try to organize it. So I just started typing, you know, the thoughts I had written down and tried to have some kind of cohesive themes running through it. And and I mean, I'll be completely honest, Chris Allen, again, from the attorney general's office has always been my go-to editor and, yeah. and he helped me edit it and, you know, get rid of some of the redundancies that I like to, or I think it was for the Eaton County one. I, I had some really strong words that <laughs> probably didn't need to be <laughs> expressed because we were kind of dealing with some, some folks who were going to the media with some incredible comments. Um, you know, I think I might've suggested someone involved was a 
Holocaust denier. And maybe that wasn't the best uh, (laughs) analogy. (laughs) But so Chris helped me edit it into something that I think, you know, I'm really proud of. And I, I, you know, I've listened to it a couple of times or read it too. And, and I go back to it, you know, when I, when I'm now teaching people or, because I think those larger issues are still, even with the, you know, transformative effect that the Me Too movement and Toronto Burke and the Weinstein case and so many other cases have had, I think we're still grappling with those larger victim blaming rape culture myths for sure. Right. Do you think that the Me Too movement has turned a corner, has made an impact, has changed our systems, our society? Or do you think there's just so much more work to do because we're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of years of patriarchy and white supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I think it has helped. I don't think yeah. I don't think we've, we don't have a magic wand where suddenly all of the issues we've been grappling with related to victim responses and institutional responses to reporting and support. I think we don't have to look any further than the Weinstein case where you saw how hard it was for those victims to come forward and be eviscerated, you know, in the courtroom, sometimes in the media about their motivations or, you know, I mean, this is, this is one of those things I'd often try to voir dire on and jury question, you know, no one questions the motivations of somebody who's saying, you know, their car was stolen or their house was broken into, but there's this knee jerk reaction of what can we even believe that this crime occurred, you know, and that's, that's unsettling. And you have to kind of break it down into it's so hard for victims, I think, to come forward and yeah. to participate in the system, particularly if they're not being treated well by the people who should, the prosecutors, the police, the court system. You know, I mean, I question whether I would ever come forward if I had ever been in that position, because I know there's so many non, you just can't guarantee what's going to happen and how your life's going to be upended. And you know, I'm in awe of all of the survivors I worked with on that case and, and many others who you know, have risked so much, right. you know, I'd be remiss, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about Nasser, but you know how important the other big case that I was Shawana working Hall. on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, before Nasser, you know, the Kelvin Kelly case, which was, you know, involved a, a serial rapist truck driver who, you know, we had linked to 11 rapes spanning four states. I mean, that was my big case before yeah. that, you know, I was working on for four years and had gone through many adjournments and many appeals. You know, the women in that case, and especially Shawana Hall, who was our, our main charge victim, they were treated pretty horrifically by many of the responding police departments. I mean, not only did they, you know, report their rape, it was, you know, horrific, brutal assaults and kidnappings, you know, with weapons and threats of harm. And I mean, they truly believed they were going to be killed and they would get to safety and they do what we asked them to do. They report it to the police. They you know, go to a hospital or a sexual assault program and get a rape kit done. And, you know, almost every single one of those police reports, as we look back over 20, 25 years, you know, many of them, there was some doubt when they had that contact with police or, or prosecutors even. I mean, the police instead of great prosecutors just wanting to take what they thought was a challenging case. It wasn't a case, but it wasn't, you know, unwinnable. And, you know, when you break it down, you know, what, what does someone have to gain by lying, right? I mean, that's one of the right, analysis right. I would use when I was reviewing a case. Does somebody have a motive to lie? You know, is there someone in the, the child's life who maybe has a reason? It's, but you have to be prepared for what the defense is going to bring. And 
when you really break it down, oh, well, they, you know, in Nasser, they wanted money or they wanted fame. I mean, that's just absurd because there's no guarantee of that, you know? And then when you talk about women from marginalized communities and minority populations and inner city neighborhoods, I mean, they're not going to ever be able to sue anybody. I mean, you know, the the idea that they're somehow gaining something with the defense was that they were all prostitutes, which was not true. And that they, you know, didn't get paid. So then they're going to use the system for 10, 15, 20 years to try to settle a debt. But it's preposterous. It's preposterous. And yeah, and I mean, listen, the defense attorneys have to do their job. I want them to do it well. I have encountered very excellent defenders. Some of my friends are, and we need that aspect of the system. I want them to have their due process rights protected and me held to my burden. But it's hard because you see working with the victims, you see the impact that not only the assault has, how it's changed their life, the trauma, especially when we're talking about untested rape kit cases or cold cases that are reopened, you see the impact that it has just on their ability to function every day or to move forward. And then, you know, they're willing to take that risk and come along on this journey with you to try to get justice, to try to be heard. And, you know, Shawana did that. And so many other victims in that case did that at great personal sacrifice. And that case will haunt me forever. I mean, I I am grounded in the idea that there is nothing more I could have done. And I truly believe that. I mean, I worked on that case for four years, the three weeks of the trial, I, you know, I don't sleep during trial. I probably, you know, get four or five hours because there's something more I always feel like I can do. I usually gain about 10 pounds, which is not good you know, because I'm not exercising during trial or, or I wasn't. I mean, it's part of the reason I pulled back, but I'm eating junk. I'm laser focused. I'm not a great mom or wife during that time or probably friend, but because I do feel this tremendous weight of making sure I've done everything I can. And I know that in that case I did. I will constantly be haunted by the idea that 12 people can see something so differently than how I did. Because I thought, you know, after close to 20 years, I I could predict, right? I had gotten good at not selling something because I, I truly have never brought a case that I believed somebody wasn't guilty. And in fact, I've had cases where I've asked supervisors to dismiss charges when I thought there was a question of someone's guilt. But I just, you know, still struggle with how I could have read it so wrong and someone else seen it so differently. I mean, I'm, you know, so for your listeners, he was acquitted. There've been a couple of really great articles written about the case and the impact on the victims. And shortly you know, thereafter, Shawana Hall died of an accidental overdose. And, you know, I, I think I got the call. This is where, where it intersects with Nasser because it's hard for me to separate those two cases because they were overlapping at the same time. And, you know, the Kelly trial was in September of 2017. And I literally had to pivot immediately to preparing for the, the, the Nasser trial, which we thought was going to start in December of 2017, you know, before the plea happened in late November. So it was the weekend before the Nasser plea that I got the call about Shawana's death. And I remember coming home from the, the Nasser plea. It was the, the day before Thanksgiving in 2017. And, and I had finally been able to connect with Shawana's sister, Talea, who I know you've, you've met before and yeah. talked to um, so here we have, you know, we have this relief of Nasser has pled guilty and they're, you know, we have a guaranteed result. Our, our victims don't have to go through a potentially six month trial of intense media scrutiny where, you know, it still was not a slam dunk case. Like right, the, the, right. the jury could have found him 
not guilty or some other yeah happen and there's that kind of I don't want to say euphoria, but relief and, you know, everyone is, is happy about the fact that he's admitted it. And then I come home and, you know, try to figure out what our family is doing for, I think, because it was a different, different year with all that was happening. And, you know, I get a call from Talia and I connect with her and, and, you know, the detective and I who threw her heart and soul into it too. I mean, we, we built such a relationship with the family and, we didn't blame ourselves. I mean, that, that's not the appropriate word, but we, you know, we did feel responsible. somewhat responsible. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, she had been doing well and, and both the, the trauma of going through a trial and being cross-examined and, you know, the not guilty hit her more than, than really anything, probably even potentially more than the assault or at least in a different way. So I, you know, it, it's actually, it's her birthday tomorrow. I remember I'm pretty sure it's to the fourth or the fifth. It's early April, and because it happened to be, it was her birthday that night. She was assaulted. Yeah. So those are the kind of things that stick in my head, right? Because I I remember the days of assaults. (laughs) I remember the locations of assaults. You know, because we have to prove those part of our crimes. So those kind of get embedded in my head and. You know, I'd probably not be a very fun person to kind of drive around Michigan with because I could tell you where, you know, all the different assaults. I mean, I had three cases in, in Charlevoix in a short period of time. And, and now I go to Charlevoix, which is so idyllic and beautiful. And, and all I think about is the, you know, the rape that happened during the Venetian festival or, or some other, you know, sexual assault. So it's, it is hard to turn it off. I think we should just say happy birthday to Sharona Hall. I do too. If she were with us, we'd be able to celebrate that. I think one of the things listeners probably don't know is that the key difference between the Calvin Kelly case and the Nasser case is in who the victims are. And in the Kelly case, the majority of the victims were made marginal by their race, by their class, by their poverty. And they, you know, were not believed in the same way that the victims who were more middle class, had lighter skin, came from, you know, intact families were believed. And the cases are just so stark in that way. I mean, you know, both serial predators, both men who, you know, on their face are guilty, but a jury in Kalamazoo, you know, refused to believe Shawana Hall. And it's hard not to see that their verdict was rooted in lots of ways in their own conscious and unconscious biases, you know, and that's work that we still need to do. We need to work on getting everyone to believe women and men who come forward and say that they've been assaulted. Believe first. And that's something that you advocate, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it's important you know, for any of your listeners to know that he still is under investigation in another city right. uh, that had pending cases and continues to test their rape kit cases and has even more connections. So he's in custody in Memphis and awaiting trial there on Good. at least three. I didn't realize he was in custody. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we worked with those officials shortly after to, to make sure that it was on their radar. But um, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, there's a there's a large national movement in light of everything that's happening here. One of the things I was looking forward to before the country kind of stopped was an international conference I was going to be speaking at in a couple of weeks in Washington, D.C. for the end violence against women international. Mm-hmm. And I was going to be doing a, a case comparison of, the, of those two cases and what we can learn. But that group has started a national campaign that essentially is the start by believing campaign and that 
instead of questioning or being suspicious of folks who report or disclose, and we're not just talking about to police, but, you know, I mean, you know, as a result of Nasser, I had, you know, at least a handful of family and friends who disclosed their own history to me that I didn't know prior to that. And, and when we talk about start by believing, I think it's important for people to not think of it just in the context of the criminal justice system, but in society in general, like you may have a friend who comes to you and discloses, you know, something that happened to them acutely or, you know, years ago, and your response to that person can really impact how they heal, how they move forward, whether they decide to report. And, you know, there's this conflict sometimes within law enforcement and prosecution that, well, you know, our job isn't to believe them, it's to investigate. And, you know, if we're automatically believing them, we're abdicating our duty or something. And I, I completely disagree. I mean, I think you can both start by believing you can you can corroborate. I want the police to do a thorough investigation and try to determine if they can corroborate a victim's version or or not, or you know, look into motivation if there is, but you don't do that, you know, through a police cross-examination of a victim or in right. you know, I know there's a good Netflix series, An Unbelievable Rape, where we talk where it talks about a true life story of how detectives who didn't believe that victim and then ultimately the ramifications of not believing, you know, had impact on other victims. So that's absolutely. a great show. I believe in. It is. Yeah. It's very well done. It is very well done. Did you feel like it was pretty true to form in terms of? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Business? Yeah. And I mean, the thing about that is I had read the, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong, their long story that won the Pulitzer about that case. So that's what started it. And then I know they wrote a book and then became a movie. And I know Avawi was instrumental in, in assisting them with some of the technical assistance parts of it, but it was spot on about what we hear. I mean, you know, we're in suburban Detroit and, you know, when I was in Wayne County, I was there when they discovered the 10,000 plus rape kits when Kim Worthy became, you know, a really national advocate on this issue and raising awareness and this idea that, you know, it's not a Detroit problem. It's in, right. I think at its peak, there were over 400,000 rape kits that were untested. And even just in those 10,000 in Detroit, they've, they've found connections to, I think, well over 40 states. So there are real ramifications, both in, I think, public safety and offender accountability and victim healing when we don't start by believing. Right. What do you think is the role of investigative journalists in the work that you do? You know, I have such tremendous respect for, you know, all journalists and especially the investigative journalists. And, you know, even in the last couple of weeks, I think one of the, there's so much news being disseminated and consumed. And, and one of the pieces that I don't think got enough attention and kind of got buried is this idea that thousands of journalists around the country through, I think it was Gannett, are going to be forced to, you know, have furloughs like one week a month. And what that really means for our communities is that, you know, these watchdogs who's, you know, who on our behalfs are holding public officials accountable, holding institutions accountable, like, who sometimes are the only voice for a victim. You know, when, when we look back on Nasser and we see how, you know, people had reported to people in authority and how those reports were diminished or buried or, you know, particularly when we look at USA gymnastics and people thought they were doing the right thing by telling the president and others who had relationships with the FBI. And, and you know, I think all of that is, that chapter is still left to come out and write, but you know, without those journalists, we wouldn't have Nassar. Without those journalists, I would submit, you know, much of the focus we've had on rape kits wouldn't happen. Without those journalists, we wouldn't have Me Too. 
and Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and, right. you know, all of these kind of groundswell cases. So I know just in the 20 years I've been within the criminal justice system, you know, I think I talked earlier about kind of picking up a newspaper and seeing a headline case and then being able to go and, and watch that case. That just doesn't happen anymore. You right. know, I know in Detroit, there, there were at least, you know, a handful of reporters whose job it was to cover Frank Murphy because you have, you know, 13, 14 floors of just the craziest stuff going on. You know, you could be in an elevator with a defendant's family and a victim's family and a police and it's just, but that's just not happening. So we're already missing those stories. And it, it kind of blows my mind when I talk to my friends there and they're telling me about a big case they're doing. And I'm like, I've never heard of this. How can I not hear about this? Right. You know, because it is important. And, you know, without those investigative journalists, there've been so many journalists involved in the Nasser case that I think have been great and, and others who have branched off, you know, in, including on the Kelly case and, yeah. You know, Matt Mancrini from, from the Lansing State Journal or formerly, you know, his office allowed him to really dive into the Kelly case and, and spend a significant amount of time on that subject because they, they found value in telling that story. And that's what we lose when we when we don't prioritize investigative journalists. I mean, it, it really I think it, it's one of the most local things. I want to know what my city council is doing and not just rely on next door or some other place to get it. Right. <laughs> Especially not next door. <laughs> Especially not next, not our next door, right? Um, no offense to the people that might be listening from next door, but um, we could have a podcast just about oh, things from next door, could. just from our own, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's troubling, and I think that people have so many things to worry about right now. And I know that that is probably not on most folks' radar, understandably right. so. But but if we lose the free press, if we lose our investigative journalists, I think that the ripple effect through society is, is pretty horrific. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I have a couple more questions and these are going to be kind of fast ones. And then, you know, I think maybe you probably want to eat some lunch or something. Um, so what is your go-to pump me up song that you listen to on the way to court or on the way to work? Did you, have, did you have a Nasser, like a song that you listened to during the Nasser case that got oh, you ready? That well, I had you? a playlist that I would go to, but I don't know. Can we swear on this thing? I don't know that I like, can tell you. Of like one of my swear on this thing. So you may already know this, but um, <laughs> so <laughs> you do, right? That's why you're asking. <laughs> so one of my songs that I would go to when I was getting frustrated, right? And there were, you know, a number of frustrations along the way, but Big Sean was a go-to. <laughs> I don't give a f about you, and and I mean not in a like pump me up kind of way. And a you know I'm on the treadmill, running to try to get rid of some of this anxiety kind of thing. So I had this playlist called Fierce, and I I put a bunch of songs in it that reminded me of the victims, or reminded me of Rachel, or reminded me just of this moment. And you know like Rachel Platten's fight song. Uh, was one of them. It always reminded me of Rachel Den Hollander, and there, you know, it's just going to get really cheesy, but uh, like Jewel, like Hands, that song kind of reminded me of kind of the duty that I had to kind of help people. Oh, I can't even remember some other ones. I mean, I love all genres, you know, of music, and tend to kind of gravitate toward, toward sometimes uh, '90s hip hop a little bit, but. Um, you know, so uh, Eminem is always, you know, one. I think Lose Yourself is, is something. My friends, if they were asking you from law school, would tell you that there were two songs whenever I do karaoke or like go to a Tigers game. And it was uh, Brick House. That was one of my, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> karaoke one of my favorites, songs, too. right? 
And um, like the Eye of the Tiger. I, uh-huh. I, I love that song at Tigers at Comerica Park now, but I could go on and on about music, but there's so many great, great songs. Knowing what you know now about the world, about yourself, about being a mother, a friend, what advice would you give to your 20 or 30 year old self? Well, I think one of the most important things, you know, and I don't, this wasn't a conscious decision, but I, I've told lost students this, you know, when I, when I speak to them, because so much of them are focused on, you know, what's my job going to be and where, where's my first job and what's my career? How do I get to be partner? How do I get to be judge or whatever? The most instrumental decision, like I think I've made in my life has been kind of who my partner is, who I marry, who my support system is. And, you know, I hope everyone is as lucky as, you know, I think both of us, Danielle, to have tremendous partners through these life's journey, because I know I couldn't have gotten through those really tough years of prosecuting and, and, you know, even just trying to dig myself out of this emotional hole as a result of it without, you know, my husband and knowing that, you know, he could handle everything that came our way with the kids and school and all of those responsibilities. So I think, you know, we were, we've been together for 20 years. So, uh, yeah. you know, shortly after law school and that's something I think is, is lost in it. And I think, we're, you know, we're just lucky to have had, have had that opportunity and to have found the people that really support, you know, my career and my ambition and my goals and, and have similar, you know, goals with our family. I would say not to stick to the plan that you think you have for your life. You know, right. if I would have stuck to that plan as a 22 year old first year law student, I wouldn't have been a prosecutor. And, you know, I thought I'd always be a prosecutor in Detroit and thought I'd spend 30 years there. And then an opportunity kind of came with the attorney general's office to start something new. And, and as a result of that, I mean, there were so many blessings and opportunities and, and doors that opened. And then really, you know, being aware of kind of, when you need to make a change, you know, I since left the attorney general's office, you know, about a year and a half ago and, and realized that for our family at that stage in our life, that I could still do really good work and be committed to this bigger passion of mine and working on, you know, intimate partner violence and sexual assault and, but do it in a way that also took care of me, my emotional well-being and my physical well-being and my family and the needs of my family at this stage. So I don't know what the future looks like for me professionally or, or what, but at the stage I'm at right now, I feel like I'm still having a really great opportunity to do good work, but also have a, a much more balanced life. So That's really important. And I know you're doing good work and you're making huge changes. You're training police and prosecutors. You're talking to judges. You're educating everyone around you. And you have made history. And I know because I know you and know what kind of person you are, that you will continue to do that. Thank you. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for you too. (laughs) Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. This was fun. It's been great. And I hope to uh, see you in the hood. (laughs) From six feet away at least. Yeah. We need a long walk. What are you doing during the quarantine to uh, stay sane? Well, I am grateful that we have the ability and opportunity to have a Peloton bike in our basement. We've had it for about a year. Uh, it was, I think, a recommendation from you guys. Um, and, and I have got a nice streak going. So even if it's 10 minutes, I'm jumping on the bike every day, hopefully a little bit more trying to you know, get lost in that. I still am trying to keep this gratitude practice where every day I, you know, even with so many worries and concerns and, you know, really awful stuff happening in the world. There's, I have so much to be grateful for. So I, every morning I try to write it down 
do a little bit of meditation and try to have some grace with myself because, you know, it's hard juggling all that we're juggling with the dark cloud that I think is over everyone, whether they realize it or not. So I agree. So if people want to find you, where can they find you on the internet, Angie? Oh, so I'm, I'm on Twitter and it's, you know, at Angie. Well, I don't even know if my, oh, my Twitter handle is, maybe you can link it to it, but I think it's um, at Angie and then Pobolitis, P-O-B-I-L-A-I-T-I-S. That's the best place. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.